Star Wars, the prequel trilogy. A source of, and the cause of, many a nerd's discussions. I know I spent hours talking about these movies, how they didn't compare to the original trilogy, and how George Lucas didn't know what to do with them, but, uh, I think I was wrong. Hell, I think we were all wrong. Welcome back, my most excellent friends. How is the wasteland treating y'all? Wherever this finds you, I wish you all well. So let's get on. Let's talk about something that I've been noticing in the last couple of years. Something that fills me with joy. Proof that some of us are not afraid to admit our mistakes. I know that I make plenty of them. And there's plenty of evidence out there that supports that. In my youth, like so many others, I found myself caught up in the hype that was the prequel trilogy. I didn't take to the streets in homemade cosplay, nor did I camp out at my local movie theater for weeks before the release date. I didn't do any of that. In our youth, we really weren't massive Star Wars fans. And I think that's because my father wasn't a massive fan. To this day, he still just sees them as interesting stories with good characters. But that's all. I didn't grow up with toys or costumes. I didn't really see Luke Skywalker as the great hero the movies portrayed him to be. To tell you the truth, I didn't really recognize how structurally sound the original trilogy was. Until I started to pay more attention to how stories are told in general. And I found that the wonderful simplicity of Star Wars was by design. We can spend hours talking about the hero's journey and how this formula for storytelling has a appeared in mankind's collective history, but that's not why we're here. At least, not yet. Let's get back to the story. I saw Star Wars The Phantom Menace a few weeks later in the movie theaters. I remember my old man took us to this ratty local movie theater, not one of the big boys. It was a smaller place that at one point must have been devoted to a different kind of film, but at the moment was family owned. It was small, it stunk, the chairs were old. The place was not in total disrepair, but you could tell its best days were behind it. We saw it on a Saturday afternoon. Funny, thinking back to those days, while I'm sure it was still a common occurrence, I can't for the life of me remember thinking, I have to watch this movie now before someone spoils the ending for me. This was 1999, not 2021. The internet was but an inkling of what it was going to be. There was no MySpace, no Facebook. The term social media was pretty much non-existent. Hell, we didn't even have YouTube. The quality of most videos on the interwebs was, well, it was garbage. And that's if you had internet at all. Those days, it wasn't really a necessity. Not like today. We came back having seen the movie, and the movie was great. I remember how much of a big deal it was, how much money it made. How people saw it at the theaters again and again and again. There was no MCU back then, so a cinematic blockbuster of this scale, it just wasn't common. As time went on, the honeymoon phase that every Star Wars movie goes through kind of went away. And then the criticisms came. I didn't see any of this at the time. All the perceived problems, the issues with the script, the actors, the dialogue, all of that came later. 
I remember in my youth saying that George Lucas sat on the script for 30 years and that he made no effort to correct the issues that must have been there from the beginning. This was the consensus that everyone seemed to agree on. It was the fact that the prequel trilogy had a massive amount of flaws and it was never going to be as good as the original trilogy. Is that true today? I think that's a matter of perspective. As a lot of people grew up with the original trilogy. But there is a massive amount of people who came to age with the prequels. And they came to love those characters just as much. Again, a matter of perspective. What I've seen in the last couple of years after Disney acquired the rights to Star Wars is the revisionist. I call them the revisionist, and maybe they've always been around, but I can't for the life of me ever remember running into them during my formative years. The revisionists are the people who are now saying that the prequel trilogy has always been good and that the massive flaws that exist and are widely recognized, those have been blown out of proportion. Maybe they've always held this point of view, or they have changed their way of thinking and are now trying to hide their original opinions. I've seen so many videos that explain the lore and the stories that take place in between the movies, and the revisionists, the good ones at least, they've done a really amazing job at enriching the events of the prequel trilogy. I've never claimed to be a hardcore Star Wars fan, so to understand the different perspectives and the little nuances, I've really come to enjoy that in the last couple of years. I have to admit to this, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I want my position, my stance on certain topics to be clear, to be precise, so that I can go back and admit that I've made changes in my way of thinking, or that I've always held a certain stance on, well, anything. In regards to the prequel trilogy, I am not a revisionist. I saw them, I liked them at first, and like a lot of people, I came to dislike them as time went on. And the truth, the reality is, we were all wrong. And I have no idea how that happened. It's not like I've never made mistakes with some movies. My record for the most part has been on the money. However, in recent years, I've been wrong about movies like Interstellar. Wally, and I'm sure I've neglected other movies that are just as good. For the longest time, I never even saw the Shawshank Redemption. Is that how you say that? Shawshank? 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 I think it's Shawshank. Shawshank Redemption. Ah, whatever. I know, I know. Come at me with all the hate and all the jeers, but it was a movie I just never really paid any attention to. And one Saturday afternoon with really nothing to do, nothing to watch. I mean, I should have been writing, but I wasn't because I wasn't. I just decided to put it on on Netflix and I was blown away. It's a great movie. It deserves an episode of its own. Here's the thing. I think this is the reason why these apologists are coming out of the works. And the reason why so many of us have changed our minds in the last couple of years. And yes, it does have to do with Disney. And yes, the Clone Wars are involved. But the main reason is the sequel trilogy. The sequel trilogy deserves an episode, multiple episodes devoted to it altogether. It was the continuation and the culmination of the Skywalker saga. And the chance to start a new storyline, a new journey for a new generation. And it sort of does that. 
The way that the sequel trilogy was conceived, structured, filmed, and presented is... Well, there's a lot that can be said. I don't want to spend too much time on its negative aspects because there's a lot of them. But I do want to talk about something that I've noticed pop up in the last couple of years, at least regarding the sequel trilogy. There's people who made genuine... Genuine. I can never say this word. There's people who made genuine emotional connections with those characters, despite their obvious flaws and lack of development. There's people who didn't give up on them. People who want to see justice done for how those movies played out. There's people who want to see their stories continued, who don't want to retcon. They want to see these characters return to the big screen and get their due diligence. I think that's a nice sentiment. Trying to make the best out of a bad situation. I can't really say I am one of those people. I like them well enough. But the truth is, the damage done to the franchise, to the storyline, to these characters was extensive. Probably too extensive to correct. I think while entirely possible to reboot, to reinvent, and to try again, at this point it's, it's kind of like trying to pick up spilt milk. Nobody does that, and there's no point to it. I don't have any idea what direction to take Star Wars in. I may be a writer, but I can't confess to be that skilled, to be that good, to fix a mess this big. Even if I had all the understanding, all the knowledge, it's hard to continue this storyline. Mostly because of how it ended, how it wrapped up, and all the damage that was done to it along the way. I don't know if anyone can. Probably the reason why the new projects, the upcoming projects, those are all going to be focused on the time period after the end of the original trilogy. Again, it's not impossible, but I wonder if it would be worth it. I don't want to get into too many details with how these movies derailed the franchise, how there was no structure, how they were just making up everything as they went along, so on and so forth. You want precise instances and evidence of all this happened? There's plenty of YouTubers who can show you their work and back up all of my statements. Believe me, I might end up doing it one day myself if I can ever stomach watching those movies again. I think a couple times was enough. After all, I, I wanted to be sure. I said before that I'm not a good enough writer to properly fix this story. To take it somewhere interesting, and that's true. But the fact is, there was really no need to reinvent the wheel here. There were decades worth of stories told in the Star Wars universe after the fall of the Empire. Volumes. Volumes of books. And the only thing these dumb Disney executives had to do was to simply adapt one of these books. Just pick the best one and bam, boom. There's your story. There's your movie. They wanted to go in a different direction. And when you buy the rights to a franchise, you can absolutely do that. You can do whatever you want. The problem with that is, just because you can do whatever you want, doesn't mean you should. And the people who were tasked with these new trilogy didn't really understand that. And that there be the reason why the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy are so consistent. And why the sequel trilogy is so disjointed. The first six movies were written by the same person, with a singular viewpoint. He tells a story that, while messy at times, is still consistent. It still follows the same characters, and their development is gradual and logical. You know, it makes sense. 
no one ever acts out of character. There's no surprises, nothing coming out of left field. Except for maybe Leia and Luke being siblings. I'm not against the changes that Lucas made to his original story, and he did make changes. There's no way he knew that they would be siblings, or that Vader would be Luke's father. Pretty sure he just came up with that one on the spot. I can't really prove any of that. If someone actually knows, just let me know. I'm always interested in learning new things about Star Wars. Why did I write this? I wrote The End of the Skywalker Saga. A storyline famous the world over. It should have been the cinematic event of the century. Well, yeah, that's actually true. It should have been. With nothing even coming close to surpassing it. But instead, I think we were all just relieved that it was over. And a lot of people ended up lamenting what came to be. The Last Jedi prematurely ended the series. And The Rise of Skywalker, whatever that last movie was named. They didn't really accomplish anything other than to prove to the rest of the world that the writers didn't have a clue as to what they were doing. I mean, a fetch quest for a movie? Come on, man. Okay, enough of that. Let's talk about what these movies really accomplished. And that was, they made us all appreciate how well written the prequel trilogy really was. I'm serious. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the problems that these movies had, what they did really well, and how the passage of time has allowed them to age gracefully. So that we may truly understand how great they were, even if we didn't see that the first time through. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. This is the obvious place to start, and it's a movie that introduces our main cast for the next three movies. It's also the movie that had some of the biggest problems of the prequel trilogy. Despite all of that, it accomplished something that every story of this magnitude needs to do, and that's world building. But we can talk about all that a little later. I remember watching it for the first time, not really thinking much of anything about all the scenes that had politics behind it. Growing up, political thrillers were a staple in my household, so watching a movie that could be classified as a slow burn or a boring movie where all they do is talk. That was something that we already did. So this complaint that a lot of people seem to have about this movie. It was just never a major issue for me. They had to talk about this thing. Uh, one thing is for certain. The movie sets up the reason why the war started in the first place. It was the actions of the Trade Federation on the planet Naboo. And the Republic's response to it all. That was it. I mean... Writing it down now, it's as simple as the plot to A New Hope. Simple. Easy to follow, right? The Queen escapes the blockade, so she cannot be used by their Viceroy. The Jedi that we see at the beginning of the movie, the ones who are sent to negotiate with the Trade Federation on behalf of the Republic. But instead, they're ambushed, they have to make a quick getaway to Naboo, now they're helping the Queen. Simple. I don't have to keep recapping the plot to The Phantom Menace. You know what it's about. And that's not the point of this episode anyway. Instead, let's talk about something that became a problem as the movie's age. And that's Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar Binks' role in this whole movie should have been one of comedic relief. His role should have been short, and he should have stayed in Naboo. Never to be seen or heard from again. I honestly believe had that been the case, no one would have had a problem with this character, but we know it wasn't. Instead, he becomes a central character. I mean, 
what's that all about? There's really no way to defend that, no way to look at that any different. And before you go off saying that had it not been for his intervention, the Gungans and the people of Naboo wouldn't have been able to reconcile, let me say this. They didn't need to reconcile. It wasn't the Gungans who won the battle, it was the Naboo Starfighters, or whatever we're calling those ships that did it. It was Anakin who destroyed the droid control ship and shut them down. If anything, Gungans died in order to do what? Slow down the droid army? I always thought that whole sequence was a little silly if you ask me. That battle was just weird, and the only reason the whole Gungan army didn't get slaughtered was again because of Anakin and the other Nafu pilots. They were the true heroes of this movie. No one ever says bupkis about them, so here I am, calling it how I see it. But there it is, it's Jar Jar that makes an alliance possible, and it's Jar Jar who becomes a senator and votes Palpatine into power. Oh, wait, that hasn't happened yet. Let's not focus on that just yet. What was, what was the reason behind making this character such a central piece of the story? I don't know. No one's been able to explain it to me properly. Out of all the good ideas and characters that Lucas came up with in his six movies, Jar Jar stands out. But for all the wrong reasons. I could keep going, but eh, let's not. Instead, let's talk about Anakin. Did you know that Anakin was supposed to be much older? But in order to really cement the fear and the doubt that you would feel as a child about having to leave your only family behind, that was the only reason they decided to make him younger? They figured a younger character would be able to convince the audience a little better, make them empathize with his plight. That's not what I experienced at all, though. I came out of it with a different take. Instead, I was never really a big fan of Jake Lloyd's performance. Don't get me wrong, he was charming. He was empathetic. He was a good actor by all the standards that he had to meet. And the pod race sequence was good. It came out of left field, but it's still enjoyable it's still probably my favorite part of that movie i know it was my favorite part as a kid that in duel of fates of course i don't know if other people think that I, I do though and i think that's good enough for this podcast making anakin young and keeping padme older always threw me for a loop especially since we pretty much knew right from the get-go that they're supposed to fall in love they're supposed to get married She's supposed to give birth to Luke and Leia. How they get there, that was the mystery at the time. But knowing this little kid grows up and ends up dating the already very much adult-looking Padme, it's one of those little details that you don't really think about because we don't like thinking about them. Just like Indiana Jones and Marion and the details of their relationship. No one likes to talk about that. You want more details, look it up. The internet's a thing. Back to Star Wars. I don't remember the uproar. Over the midi-chlorians, not at the beginning. Maybe it's because the internet wasn't really a thing. But it definitely became a thing later. The retcon was dumb, and I've never heard a legitimate reason for it. The force didn't need to be quantified. We didn't need to know where it came from or why. The force should have stayed as it was. It's the force. It surrounds us, it guides us, it flows through us and helps us. The midichlorian babble doesn't make any sense, and the editing team should have realized that. I'm pretty sure there was a better way to convey that Anakin was strong in the Force. The pod race sequence should have been proof enough of that. 
again, it didn't really bother me growing up. But looking back, it was misguided to include it in the final cut. We're not going to be talking about the editing just yet. Let's just save that for later. Not bringing Anakin's mom. That I like. That was a stroke of genius. And I'm glad that I didn't see it at the time. Again, I wasn't too upset or anything about it. I, I didn't really care too much. The idea of leaving your mom, your family behind, that might resonate with a lot of people, just not with me. It was a subtle way of introducing fear and doubt in Anakin, and it pays off later in the story. As a child, you don't really think about that sort of stuff. At least I didn't. There were definitely people who did think about stuff like that. And Dave Filoni was one of them. More on him later. There is one more thing I want to talk about concerning episode one. But uh, again, let's save that for later. Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, is where the story really begins to tighten up. We see that the Separatists and the Trade Federation, they're still in full swing. And the story starts with them trying to kill Padme. She's not a queen anymore. She's a senator. In order to make sure this doesn't happen, the Jedi Council decides to assign Obi-Wan and... Is Padawan, the now older, more experienced Anakin. I can continue to talk about the overall plot to Attack of the Clones, but there's no need to. We all know what happens. Let's talk about the hits and misses. Plenty of that on both sides. It used to annoy me that they went the love story route with this movie. With so much that had to happen in this movie, and we're wasting half the runtime on a love story that seems so stunted, so awkward. Even as a child, I understood that there was something fundamentally wrong with this part of the movie. Huh. Yeah. Okay, looking at the times, I don't really think I was a kid anymore. But still, I didn't understand the significance of the love story in Anakin's arc and how it would eventually push him to the dark side of the Force. You know, attachments and such. Before we really talk about that, let's talk about some of the best elements of Attack of the Clones. Is that what it's called? Attack of the Clones? Is that what? I don't know. I always forget the names. Pretty sure it's called Attack of the Clones. I could be wrong. We get a time skip in the story. I love those. Time skips are always great. It basically gives the writer a chance to redefine their characters all over again. And that's what we get with both Anakin and Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan's not a Padawan anymore, he's a Jedi Master, and we see that he's fulfilled his promise to Qui-Gon. He's taken Anakin and trained him, despite the protest of the Jedi Council. While Anakin is tasked with taking care of the Senator, Obi-Wan goes off to find the people who are trying to kill her. In the middle of that, he discovers that another Jedi Master, a man named Sifo-Dyas, has commissioned the clone army to serve the Republic. It's here where he runs into Jungle Fett. We get that really cool fight sequence in Kamino. He gets in touch with Anakin, and this is what eventually they end up in Geonosis. I gotta confess, I, I can never remember the name to that planet. I always have to look it up. And uh, it's here where we get one of the more interesting parts of this movie. Obi-Wan gets captured, and we get introduced to Count Dooku. I'm pretty sure this is the first time we definitively see Count Dooku. And even as a young man, I always knew that there was something to him. Count Dooku straight up tells Obi-Wan that the Sith have returned. 
In fact, he almost begs Obi-Wan to join him so that they can take down the Sith and rule the galaxy together, which all these villains are always just trying to rule the galaxy together. You know how hard that would be? Anyway, while our hero doesn't even consider it, I always found it weird that Doku never behaved like the pawn he's supposed to be. It's almost like he knew he didn't factor in Sicilia's long-term plans, so he was basically trying to overthrow him before that happened. Doku doesn't get nearly enough screen time, and that's a shame. He's such a dynamic and interesting villain. And there's more to him that meets the eye. Even with no knowledge of the details in between, that's the impression that I always got from him. And again, my man Dave Filoni fills in the details in the Clone Wars. Before we talk about the Battle of Geonosis, how about that chase sequence between Django and Obi-Wan? Dude, I loved it. I was so floored when I watched it the first time. And it still stands up as one of the more impressive space sequences in Star Wars. And the grenades that Django uses, oh, it's a, that, was, that was a thing of art. Just masterful, stunning. One of my favorite pieces of sound design ever. I love, love that we saw them again in The Mandalorian. I love the continuity, that little Easter egg that brought joy to so many of us. That was so cool. Okay, let's talk about Geonosis now. Let's talk about Geonosis. It's here where our heroes reunite. They get the message from Obi-Wan. Anakin originally wanted to stay on Naboo in order to protect Padme, but it's Padme that's basically like, no, we gotta we gotta go help him. She makes that decision. Ugh, said that word. She makes the decision to go and help him. There's a lot to say about Anakin's journey in this movie. And there's one sequence that's especially telling of his journey, but I wanna save it. Let's talk about what I liked about Anakin in this movie. And it's something that seems weird at first, but I, I, looking back, looking back, I absolutely love it. Anakin's been training to be a Jedi for 10 years by the time we see him again in this movie. And in all that time, he never forgot about Padme. Also, it doesn't seem like the Jedi place a lot of importance into social skills. Because he acts like a total dork when he runs into her again i totally got this growing up some women just have that effect on men and dude we're talking about natalie portman in her prime totally understandable i love how awkward it seemed at first especially because of the age difference that never seems to get brought up you think it would be i mean she's an unaging space lizard or something he was a kid in episode one and then he's a grown man in episode two, and she's the same, not a day older. Let's not get into that too much. I've never heard any kind of explanation for it from anyone, and I'm not about to get into it. When I was uh, when I was younger, when I was younger, I, I always just assumed that people from Naboo age differently or something. It's Star Wars. An explanation like that wouldn't be out of left field. If anybody does know, just let me know. Yeah, because I've always wondered. After our leads chase the would-be assassin and track it, her, whatever, they track it down. That's when Anakin, uh, uh, that's where Anakin goes with Padme back to Naboo to take care of her. So now we have two storylines developing at the same time. And I, I like that. That was pretty cool. Just like Empire. Also, it basically gives the story a reason to develop a romance between the two. I understood that. I accepted that. 
even when I was younger, it made sense to show the audience how these two fall in love, how their romance is supposed to blossom. That concept, what they wanted to convey, dude, I'm all for it. It's the execution that really falls short. If Jar Jar and Anakin's age stood out as the least developed elements of The Phantom Menace, it's the love story arc of this movie that falls flat for me. I remember my man saying at the time that the reason why I never liked this part of the movie is because I don't like romance in movies, and that's just not true at all. While I don't particularly enjoy movies like The Notebook or A Walk to Remember, romance has a place. Why am I saying romance? Romance? Wrong. Romance? Romance? Whatever. It, it has a place in storytelling. And when done right, it enriches the story. It humanizes it. In a way only love can do. And, keywords here, keywords. When done right. In the original trilogy, you can see chemistry immediately between Princess Leia and Han Solo. Sometimes that sort of thing just happens. You have two leads that are immediately drawn to one another, and their attraction is tangible. Their interactions are expertly crafted. The tension between the two of them is very much real. I'm sure that's what Lucas saw in Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford, and that's why he made Luke her brother as opposed to a romantic rival. You can totally see that's what he was going to do in A New Hope. You watch that movie again, you tell me that's not happening. There was no way that Luke and Leia were brother and sister in the original drafts. I've said it before, I'm saying it now. There's no way you can convince me otherwise. A real missing element in the sequel trilogy is the lack of romance between any characters. There's no romance, there's no wooing, there's... There's nothing. And that weird pity kiss we saw in Skywalker was creepy and weird and sad. Did I say it was weird? It almost felt like seeing someone kiss their brother or sister, which, oddly enough, did happen in Star Wars. There was nothing behind it. And again, you're not going to convince me otherwise. There's no buildup. And whatever Ryan Johnson was trying to convey in The Last Jedi, look, I don't know what that was, but it wasn't love. It wasn't even an admission of physical attraction. Rey wanted to turn him to the light, Kylo wanted her to join him to the dark side, that was it. No one was pining for no one, there was no hint whatsoever, uh, no attraction, no chemistry. I mean, I guess Finn kinda has that, but then they cut that out because Finn gets nothing in those movies. And the less we say about Rose, the better. In fact, that's the only time I'm ever going to mention her. In contrast to this mockery, Anakin and Padme go off to Naboo and they develop this attraction. It grows. Their love for one another deepens as they get to know one another and see how their experiences growing up changed them, how they had to embrace those experiences. I love how we got to see Padme's childhood home and how Anakin got to meet her mom, her sister, and her father. Wait, you don't remember that part? It's right there in the movie. It's, it's a critical element that really gives us an insight into who Padme is. What do you mean they cut it out the film? Without it, we don't see Anakin and Padme's relationship grow naturally. We don't get to see them have natural conversations with one another. There's no way they would cut those scenes out. At least they also cut out that whole I hate sand scene because that was awful. 
What do you mean that's in the movie? It is? <laughs> I kid. Not about Anakin meeting Padme's family. That actually did happen. All the scenes I just described are in the deleted scenes of Star Wars. You could you could catch them online. Disney Plus, YouTube. Alright, story time, children. One very awful afternoon among many awful afternoon, I found myself at work. And after shoving another cheeseburger down my gullet, I decided to spend the remaining time I had on my break watching junk on YouTube, as one does. And after a few videos, I found myself watching Star Wars deleted scenes, and lo and behold, there was a whole sequence where all this actually happens. And let me tell you, children, I was stuck. And all my time, I knew that there was deleted scenes for the prequel trilogy. Of course there was. I just didn't know what was in them. So again, I was just shocked to see this. My day ended, and I remember very, very specifically that I told my sister about what I'd seen. And her response was really unremarkable. I can't really remember what she said at all, to be honest, but I, I couldn't believe it. Okay, for real. For years, years, I was convinced that Anakin had brainwashed Padme because that's what it looks like in the finished movie. She spends the whole movie rejecting his advances, only to suddenly and unexpectedly say, yes, I love you, as they're about to be eaten by that crab monster. That never made any sense to me. She never really sees him like she would see a romantic partner in the whole movie. He kind of just comes off as an infatuated child that can't seem to take a hint. And then the whole movie turns on a dime and suddenly they're both so in love. I'm no expert in romantic stories, but that's not how they're supposed to work, right? To realize that there was a whole sequence that actually highlights their relationship and lets us see them interacting normally and to cut that out of the movie? I don't know, man. Kinda just seems like a disservice to the story as a whole. And ultimately, it's a prime example of what many people have stated about Star Wars. A notion I've become convinced of ever since I started to watch the Clone Wars. The Star Wars saga is too big, too expansive to be told with just movies. That's just the truth. And I think part of this episode is coming to terms with that. Coming to terms with the fact that the prequel trilogy was good. And that they made mistakes. But not with the story as a whole, but rather some of its execution. Anywho, we see Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Padme desperately fight to stay alive in the ring, and then the Jedi show up. It's a rescue mission! But they're also here to capture Count Dooku, because he's a major player. And, well, we know he becomes a major player in the Clone Wars. The pacing of the last act in this movie is really well done. Seeing Obi-Wan and Anakin fight Count Dooku and then lose to him, I really like that. I like Dooku. Doku, however you say his name. So seeing him get away, that was cool. Like he would be a major baddie going forward. Anakin losing a hand, that's also a nice little touch. You can't have Star Wars and not have someone lose a hand. It's just not done. Speaking of which, did anyone lose a hand in the sequel trilogy? Let me look that up real quick. Uh, No, no, no one did lose a hand. No one lost a hand in the sequel trilogy. See, not a real Star Wars. All jokes aside, this movie ends a bit differently than the first one. The Phantom Menace ends on a somewhat happy note. We
we get the parade and the gungans and the people of Nauvoo and they declare peace having fought off the separatists you know they kicked them off the planet there's also a bit of mystery we get our first real exposure into what the sith really are attack of the clones ends with a wedding and that's it okay it doesn't end that way instead we see the grand army of the republic in all its glory it's a very impressive shot and that feeling that feeling is just ominous too these are clones they're not stormtroopers and this is still the republic it's not the empire but it seems like the winds of change have started to blow and that's so freaking cool of all the prequel movies episode 3 is the one that i've seen the least and that's a crying shame it's my own fault again. It all comes back to the general consensus of what this movie was when I was coming to age. I was too childish, too self-centered to really capture, to understand what I was watching. I couldn't see that we were witnessing the downfall of a man and his descent into madness, his desperation to hold on to the things that were dear to him, and how he threw away his life, his purpose, and this ultimately fruitless pursuit. The fall of Anakin wasn't predictable. It wasn't unforeseen. If anything, there were plenty of signals along the way. While we definitely didn't see those in The Phantom Menace, it started there. It started when Qui-Gon was unable to secure Anakin's mom and had to take him away from her. We saw the fear, we saw the doubt in his face as he left his home got on that Naboo ship, and then when he has to stand in front of the Jedi Council, in front of Yoda, again, he's afraid. He misses his mother. And this was a red flag for the Council. In fact, it took the death of Qui-Gon to dissuade them, to basically let Obi-Wan train him, because it was Qui-Gon's dying wish. But it's in Attack of the Clones where we see these fears, these doubts, uncertainties, they start to flare up on Revenge of the Sith begins with our heroes in the pursuit of General Grievous, a droid general who has kidnapped the Chancellor with Count Doku in tow. Our heroes square off again, and this is great, like, so early in the movie and we already get this display of lightsaber combat, and right away I love how they use this to show us that our heroes have changed. Not only do they look different, there's, um, their perspectives and their ideology has been changed by the war. I mean, we don't see that here, and I definitely want to talk about that later. Let's just keep going. Right now, they're fighting, and then Obi-Wan is injured, and now Anakin has to fight him alone. And right away, it goes from a very enjoyable sequence to one of my favorite sequences in, this mo in, in the movie. Doku again, uses his unique fighting style against Anakin. And in a blink of an eye, Anakin just beats him. <laughs> and he cuts off both his hands in the process. That's a nice little way of showing that our Anakin has changed. It's not just his appearance. This Anakin is older, wiser. The war has shaped him, changed him. And you better believe that he remembers his encounter with Doku in Attack of the Clones. 
is at this point where Anakin has to face what we perceive, just straight up, it's his first moral dilemma. He has captured Doku, and surely this will speed up the end of the war. The Chancellor is thrilled that Doku has been captured, and now he demands that Anakin execute him. There's no reason to do this. I mean, he doesn't have hands. He can't really be that much of a threat. And the Jedi don't kill unarmed prisoners. Anakin even states that he shouldn't, that it isn't right. It's not the Jedi way. And the Chancellor's like, do it, do it, kill him. And you can see in Count Dooku's face that this is totally unexpected. I love this scene. I definitely want to geek out about this scene a little bit more. Let's do that later. Anakin kills him. And immediately, he just feels remorse. Again, he says he shouldn't have done that. It's not the Jedi way. And the Chancellor remarks that Count Dooku was too dangerous to be kept alive. And it's an idea that right away Anakin disagrees with. Let's remember this because it comes back to haunt him. The Chancellor also decrees that Anakin leave Obi-Wan behind because he can't be helped. But Anakin immediately rebutes the idea. He's not going to leave Obi-Wan. More foreshadowing that maybe I should have spotted about the Chancellor. Because him being Palpatine, I'm going to confess to that right now. I didn't see that coming when I was young. So I should have spotted that. I just didn't. I guess as a, as a young man, you're not really looking for that sort of thing. Uh, later on in the film, uh, the Chancellor basically forces the council to accept Anakin. But the council, because, again, they're, like, at odds with the Chancellor, the Jedi Council says, yeah, you can be on the council, but you're not a Jedi Master. And this is a notion that Anakin just can't understand until they tell him that the reason they're doing this is because they want him to spy on the Chancellor. This, along with a few other incidents, promotes the central idea that takes place in this entire movie. That Anakin couldn't really trust anyone in his life, and that all of the people that were dear to him would fail him, in one way or another. When Padme tells him that they should seek the help of Obi-Wan because she's pregnant, he can't even consider it. He can't see Obi-Wan betraying the council to help them both. And I always thought that was kind of sad. Obi-Wan's supposed to be his master, but it never plays out that way. And I'm not the only one to make that statement. When the council makes the decision to not make him a master, you can see there's this really cool, very fast scene where Anakin looks to Obi-Wan as if asking him to come to his defense. Something that Obi-Wan fails to do. He doesn't speak up. When Anakin talks to Yoda, Yoda just tells my man that he should train himself to let go. I mean, what kind of answer is that? It's probably the right answer. But the way he just tells Anakin to do it, it doesn't sit right with him. And while we have the benefit of hindsight to reach that conclusion that Yoda was right, Anakin didn't, so why should he follow that advice? In his mind, he's about to lose Padme. And that attachment fills him with more fear than he's ever felt in his life. It becomes clear why Anakin was so attracted by the dark side. In the end, it was the only thing that at least offered him a solution, even if it wasn't the right one. 
He didn't like the idea of having to spy on his old friend. He didn't like the fact that they asked him to do something that was against the Jedi Code. The same code that they're all supposed to stick to. He didn't like what the Jedi had become. He didn't like that they would strip him of his life, his rank, because he fell in love with Padme. When he asks Obi-Wan why he's being asked to do this, Obi-Wan doesn't empathize. He simply states that it's the council asking him to do this. In fact, the only emotion we see out of Obi-Wan in this exchange is the fact that he didn't want to tell Anakin about this. He didn't want to be that person. Even so, Anakin goes along with it. Even though this assignment has left him disturbed, he could have quit. He could have walked away. Why not? But he doesn't. He couldn't. And I always ask myself, why? I mean, the option was there. And after Clone Wars, we know that it's legitimately there. But he doesn't. Anyway, Palpatine gives him his little Darth Plagueis the Wise speech. And then Anakin actually does the right thing. Instead of just joining Palpatine right then and there with his answer in front of him, the chance to save his love. Instead, Anakin goes to the council, to Master Window, and this doesn't happen right away, but after, when he's sure that Palpatine is a Sith, he tells Windu that he is the Sith they've been looking for. This scene always amazes me, the part where Palpatine just drops his pretenses, and then he asks Anakin straight up, join the dark side of the Force. Up to the very end, he was still trying to do the right thing. Still trying to fulfill his role as a Jedi. Until Mace Windu went against the Jedi Code and tried to kill Palpatine. Anakin wanted him to do the right thing. He begged him to do the right thing. Maybe not for the right reasons, but he was still asking him, don't kill him. He should stand trial. Don't abandon the Jedi way. And Windu's response? He's too dangerous to be kept alive. After that, in Anakin's mind, what was the difference? What was the difference between the Jedi and the Sith? It's just brilliant. Just sheer brilliance. It's such a moment. A point of no return. And Anakin is so aware of it. Even he tells himself, what have I done? That face, that look. Brilliant, brilliant. There's no going back. And he knows it. And we all missed it. At least a good chunk of us did. I know I did. I didn't have any appreciation for this scene the first time I saw it. And that has changed considerably. The rest of this movie is just a result of this action. And Anakin's fall is understandable. Even a wise man will act foolish when he becomes desperate. No one attempts to try to understand them. They're all just so appalled by what he's done, and, well, with good reason. Uh, I liked Order 66 when I first saw it. I know it's kind of left field. I didn't question it the way a lot of other people did. Those are good questions to ask, though. I think they're questions for another time. At the end, when everything was said and done, and the Republic is no more, the war is over, and in the dust is the birth of the Empire, none of it mattered. He didn't get to have the life with Padme that he wanted. He didn't get to be Jedi Master. He didn't get anything at all. 
He became a slave again, robbed of everything that was dear to him. I don't condone his actions. What happened to him was deserved. But Anakin's life was tragic. That's the only way I can describe it. The time for good to triumph over evil will come later. We know that it comes later. We know Anakin redeems himself. We know that Anakin redeems himself. But as it stands now, it seems like evil has won. At least the movie ends on a happier note than that. There's so many other little details in this movie. It really deserves multiple uh, it really deserves multiple viewings. Watching this movie, my only complaint about it is maybe the fight sequence at the end drags on a little bit, but that's it. That's really it. I'm really struggling to think about other details. There aren't any that come to mind. It's not a perfect movie. There's little details that stick out, but I think they can be ignored. None of them are really lore-breaking or they affect the story in a significant way. The clones and what they really are, that gets answered. Not here. It does have an answer. And I'm happy to seek it out elsewhere. With so much that they had to cram into these movies, it was the correct decision to leave a few things unanswered. They can be explored elsewhere. And speaking of that, let's talk about this elsewhere. Let's talk about the Clone Wars, if only for a little bit. I'm actually on my, I'm actually on my way when it comes to the Clone Wars. The truth is, I had avoided it for the longest time. It wasn't something that I wanted to start, simply because of the commitment. But how much content there is, I knew it would be. I knew I would be watching it for some time. After, uh, however, after seeing how many storylines develop and how crucial it really is to the overall lore of the story, I just bit the bullet and I decided to to start it. Let's just watch it. I don't mind Ahsoka like most people did. She's acting the exact same way she's supposed to. She's a kid. In a world where they're not really taking that into consideration. They kind of just need warriors and she has to step up and lead men in a combat. Sometimes with disastrous results. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't expecting that in what's considered children's television. But I like it. And storylines like this seem to be the norm. So I know that as the show gets closer to Revenge of the Sith, it's, it's going to get better. I'm excited. If you finish the series as a whole, then... You know how good it gets. I only have an inkling of it. I know most of the major story beats that take place, but I'm still excited to see them actually play out. So yes, I am enjoying the Clone Wars. I'm going to continue watching them. Let's wrap this up because it's ran a little bit long. I still have a few things to say regarding some of the major themes of, this, of these movies. Some of them you're going to agree with them. Some of them you won't. Uh, let's start with the first one. This movie didn't have to establish the amazing world that was Star Wars, uh, this, this trilogy, the prequel trilogy. That was done by the original trilogy, but it supplemented so much of what we didn't know about this world. In the original trilogy, Ben Kenobi has this throwaway line about fighting in the Clone Wars, and it's in this trilogy where that becomes all too real. We see how the war changes them. When you add new stories to an existing world, you usually have to add some mythos to it as well. And the sequel trilogy did some of that, but overall it didn't come nowhere near close to these movies. That's a shame. I know why they made Anakin so young. Let's talk about Anakin being young again. 
As I said, they wanted Anakin's separation from his mother to really mean something. Here's where I would have changed it. Casting a young Anakin was the right thing to do. I don't... I thought, I thought it was weird, but... It, it was the right thing to do. What they should have also casted, what they should have done as well, is cast a young Padme. Hear me out. Anakin's relation and his romance with Padme is one of the most critical elements of the story. And it should have started when they were younger. If there had been a strong attraction between these two leads, it would have made for a bigger impact when they eventually had to separate. And then when they reunite again, I always thought this was a missed opportunity. Uh, but who knows, I can be wrong here. I've always wanted it just to see that play out. But again, I could be wrong here. I wasn't a fan of wasting a villain like Darth Maul. I always felt that as a kid. I thought he was just wasted. I'm glad that they brought him back in the Clone Wars. That was a really good decision. Dave Filoni talking about what Duel of the Fates actually means in the commentary for The Mandalorian. I can't say I remember all the beats, but the stuff that stuck with me is how Qui-Gon and Darth Maul's fight wasn't for the future of Naboo. It was for the future of this child. And because Qui-Gon lost and died, it was Obi-Wan who eventually ended up having to train him. And this led to Anakin finding a father figure not in Qui-Gon who died or Obi-Wan who always called himself his brother, not a father. Instead, Anakin found the father figure in Chancellor Palpatine. And well, we know what happened there. He basically manipulated Anakin, turned him to the dark side. It's a really amazing explanation of how important the Phantom Menace is to the entire storyline. Check it out when you guys get a chance. I'm doing such a disservice trying to remember it from memory. The way he just very calmly and collected how he explains how important that sequence was. That was really cool. And it definitely shows why Dave Filoni is the man when it comes to Star Wars. He knows his Star Wars as well he should. I like Anakin and Obi-Wan splitting up and taking on different missions. I said very at the uh I said that it felt very much like Empire. And it ended like Empire, not happy, not sad. There was a, a lot of uncertainty with that ending. It was a really good ending. Something that always bugged me, it irked me, is that all the time that went by, you know, with Anakin training to be a Jedi. And in all that time, no one ever bothered to go and recover his mom, not even as a professional courtesy. No one ever did. They never let Anakin ask. Eventually, I just came to the conclusion that the Jedi Order just didn't really care. And this is one of the most critical moments in the story. It's the first time Anakin gives in to his emotions and he kills the Sand People. And it could have all been avoided by the Jedi if someone decided to go and get her. You Know what I mean? There's so much that takes place between episodes 2 and 3. We know this because the war lasted for quite some time. We know this because of the Clone Wars. Anakin and Obi-Wan go through so much more. And they get so much character development in the Clone Wars. And we don't get to see any of that. All the bonding, all the camaraderie. None of that happens on screen. We just see the end result in Revenge of the Sith. That always made me a bit sad. Also, it seems a bit jarring how Anakin can just fall to the dark side, but it wasn't a sudden thing. It was a gradual descent. Again, the Clone Wars fills in the gaps, and that's why it's almost become required viewing. 
Okay, a few more things. Actually, one. The last few times I've seen Revenge of the Sith, one of the scenes that grabbed me, I talked about this before, the opening fight sequence between Count Dooku and Obi-Wan and Anakin. As I said, the fight, Obi-Wan goes down, Anakin has to face him alone, and then when Anakin beats Doku, Palpatine tells him to kill him, and the face he makes, it just says so much. Right from the get-go, Doku didn't really want to serve the Emperor. He was interested in the dark side of the Force. He leaves the Jedi Order. But he wanted to overthrow the Sith. He even tells Obi-Wan that in Attack of the Clones. Obi-Wan doesn't believe him. And he, it's like he didn't expect the Emperor to abandon him. It's a really great moment that's really overlooked. And I'm not doing it like justice to just mention it like very casually. I'm sure there's so much more happening behind that that, that sequence of scenes. Uh, but it was a great scene. Like It's one of those little details that I've caught the last few times watching Revenge of the Sith. And I didn't think I'd find anything new to geek out about. But <laughs> here we are. Anyway, are you guys still here? This took a while to to write. To to be honest, I probably have a lot more to say about this trilogy as a whole. Perhaps one day I will get to it. But as of now, I, I think I'm good. I'm glad that we actually did this. If you're one of those people that doesn't like the prequel trilogy and you still see it like the inferior version, just give it another chance, please. Please give it another chance. Uh, the passage of time, the ability to look back, They've really shown such a light on how well written the overall story is. And while the dialogue does leave something to be desired, sometimes the story beats all hit the notes they're supposed to hit. There's brevity, there's sadness, and in comparison to the sequel trilogy of the last few years, I can proudly say that Lucas was right. He didn't need to change them. The tragic story of Anakin Skywalker is compelling heartbreaking and emotional. I just want to thank a whole lot of you who have made it to the end. It's been a trip. And writing this script has been so worth it. I will dedicate another episode to the Clone Wars. Maybe a few episodes, depending on how much I end up having to say. If you want more, go ahead and listen to our previous episodes. I would say support us on Patreon, but we don't have a Patreon. And I've been dragging my feet with that. So all the content that we have, that's just available for everyone. You guys can all enjoy it. Take care of yourselves, my fellow travelers, and may the Force be with you. Oh.